Humility is a virtue that's hard to talk about. As sure as you were, are to write a book on humility, and you were to say five ways I've perfected humility, uh, even in that you uh, have shown your, your, uh, your pride or your arrogance. Uh, so humility is a tough topic to come to because many of us never see us, ourselves as proud. We would like to think of ourselves as humble. But many of those around us may see us just the opposite. Humility is a virtue that should be nurtured and developed inside of us. And it's not, not easily, again, talked about in a lot of books out there, on, not a lot of messages on it. I think it's because it's a slippery topic. It's a slippery virtue. It's hard to get to. And also, I would say that most virtues are kind of hard to put your arms around. Uh, we, we'd like to have patience, and I've said this before, we'd like to have patience with our children, patience on the job, patience with our neighbors across the street or whatever the case may be. But the thing is, is that when we are in a situation that we would like to have patience, then it is in that situation that patience is developed. It is in that tensious moment, it is in that tension of the moment, in the heat of the moment, that patience is developed. It's not developed in a vacuum. It's not developed over here in a closet. It's not a pill you take. God will put us in circumstances that require us to be patient so that we can learn patience. Love is the same way. Love is a virtue that we should all have. We're told to love. We're instructed to love even our enemies. Well, guess what God will do is He will put enemies in your life so that you will learn how to love. Love is a choice, not a feeling. You've got to get way past that. That's junior high dance whenever you're talking about love being a feeling. Love is so much more a choice and the feeling follows. It's whenever I can choose and learn and get that. But it's a tenuous moment. To think that I have to love my enemy, I have to love somebody who's hurt me, who's harmed me, who's wronged me, who stabbed me in the back, it's a virtue that's hard to get to. It's a tension. All virtues are born in tension. When you come to a virtue, you need to think about what is the opposite of this, and it is in the opposite that that virtue can be developed inside of us. We've been talking about leadership for a number of weeks now and the ups and downs of leadership. And one of the things that we need to understand, if, as a leader, one of the great temptations of the greater and greater your influence is in life, the more and more people who are following your lead, the, more, the better you become at what you are, therefore you get promotions to go higher up whatever ladder you're climbing, whether it's sports or team or influence of, of people in the neighborhood or whatever it is, even if you're elected to the POA, whatever it may be, There's greater influence, greater climb, greater elevation at the same time. There's greater temptation for pride. You're going to talk about the ups and downs of leadership. You need to realize there is a pitfall in leadership, and that pitfall in leadership can be pride and arrogance. Humility and leadership is a virtue in tension. If you're going to be humble, you've got to realize that leadership is going to pull against that. As you grow in leadership, your pride and arrogance will will grow as well. You think about it in the business world. You and I know people, work around people, that are very good at what they do. That's why they are where they are. Whatever your position is, think of the person above you. And maybe you might say, they got there because of relationships. They got there and they didn't deserve it. But there's somebody in your circle of influence that you like to hang out with. Because they've got it. They know it. It clicks with them. It it jives with them. You may be one of those persons that a lot of people like to be around. That's leadership. That is influence. Well, we also all know leaders when 
that arrogance kind of begins to seep in. We've seen football players. We've seen, we've seen athletes out there in this world that have tremendous talent. And all of a sudden, what, is it, what do we say? It goes to their head. All of a sudden, that, that great skill, that great ability, all of a sudden goes to their head and no longer, I mean, they may still be good on the court and good on the field and good in the office or good wherever they are and wherever they're performing, but it's gone to their head. And nobody wants to be around. Oh, you might hire them for the work, and they may do really good, but it's gone to their head. You don't want to hang out with them. They're influencers in position, but they're not an influencer in a person, as a person, as an individual. It's gone to their head. So there's a tension there. And and that arrogant athlete or that arrogant CEO or that arrogant individual, they have lost in the battle of being able to keep that tension in place. John the Baptist is a guy that, We've got to understand from Scripture. But understand him in light of his context. He's a bit overshadowed by Jesus. Jesus is obviously the center of the story, all right? We'll go there. But when we go back to John the Baptist, John the Baptist was born on a day whenever he was a few months ahead of, of Jesus in birth. And we don't know exactly the date and all that kind of stuff. But we also know that they were somehow related. We don't know first, second cousin or whatever they were. But they were contemporaries. But John was ahead of Jesus. And John was coming on. And his ministry was flourishing. He had a tremendous amount of influence. He was a leader. Many people compared John the Baptist to an Elijah. Many of the people compare him to an Elijah or a Moses or one of the other prophets. He was a prophet in a time. He was the last prophet before the Messianic age. He was in a long line of prophets among kings. There was a tremendous amount of influence John the Baptist had. He was a powerful... He's a little in, um, he was a little eccentric, if you might will. He was a little different, but he was radical in his difference. All right, he was he was extremely influential. He didn't go to the capital city of Jerusalem. He didn't hang out there. He did his ministry in the wilderness. But he was so much a leader, so much a prophet in his day, so much having a tremendous influence for the cause of Yahweh God that people would flock to him. They would leave the city. They would drive the difference. They would go the distance to find John the Baptist and hear him communicate the message. In fact, here's a, here's a verses that support that. Mark chapter 3, verse 5 and 6 said, People went out to him. They didn't wait for John to come to him. them. They went to John. John was that kind of a guy. He was an amazing influence. Very successful. People went out to him to Jeru- from Jerusalem and all Judea as the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him. He was very successful. He earned his nickname, John the Baptizer, because he was such an impactful speaker, prophet of his day. Understand this, in the world in which he lived, in the day of the first century, he was the most successful televangelist, if I can use that phrase, televangelist of that day. He was successful. He had influence. But yet there was something about John that made him different. And I'm really saddened almost that John gets overshadowed, but if you're being overshadowed by Jesus, that's okay. And John was certainly okay with that. John was an amazing leader with amazing influence and had a following that would rival anybody else. But yet in the midst of that success, he was simple. He was a very simple individual. He was radically simple. Here's a verse that describes him. Mark chapter 1, verse 6 says, 
John was clothed with camel's hair and ate locusts and wild honey. Now, I don't know what it was about locusts and wild honey, but that doesn't appeal to me. All right, locusts doesn't appeal to me. I don't care how much honey you put on it, but maybe if you put enough on it, it tastes good. I don't know. But it was evidently so unique that John Mark, the writer of Mark, had to record in the annals of history that John, uh, John the Baptist wore camel's clothes and ate locusts covered in honey. A little bit different. Also, John the Baptist was one who stayed in the wilderness. You can read over and over again that he lived in the wilderness. He didn't live in the metropolitan. He didn't live where all the people were. People came to him. Very successful, but very simple. Let me just challenge you. One thing that you've got to take away today is that success looks best when it's on a humble person. Success looks the best when it's on a humble person. You take an arrogant individual and all their skills, and yes, they may be successful, but you don't want to hang with them. A great leader is a humble leader. There's three complexities, uh, complexities of humility, and you might jot them down. You might think about your own life and your own successes and your own climbing up whatever ladder you may be climbing up. And you say, I'm not in a ladder. I'm my own business. I'm my own, I do my own thing. You know what? You have the potential to influence other people, whether it's your family or it's your neighbors. If you were to take on a, a call to be a leader, you could lead others. And what if God were to use you as an obscure uh, man like a John the Baptist, but yet God used him in an amazing way. One of the things about John that he models for us is that you have to know who you are not so you can know who you are. One thing about humility is to understand who you are not so that hopefully you can know who you are. John the Baptist, again, I cannot emphasize enough how successful he was in his ministry But yet in his success, he was a charismatic leader. And yet in his success of his messages, and in his success of the many baptisms, he knew who he was. He said in John chapter 1, verse 20, and you might be turning to John chapter 1 today. He says, I am the voice. He knew who he was. He says, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. John knew who he was. John the Baptist, J.B., if you will, knew who he was. But before he knew who he was, he had to declare who he was not. He had to make that extremely clear to everybody. And in verse 19, uh, let's begin reading there uh, and follow along with me. It says, In the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites. Now again, let me just show you the success that maybe you might skip quickly past to get to the early writings of Jesus, is that He was so successful, people were coming to him. He was so successful, he was baptizing so many people. So if you were looking at a P&L statement, his was through the roof. Okay, you can't measure people that way, but just kind of put it into your world that way. Very successful, to the point that the people in Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites, took notice of this. They said, we've got to figure out who this John the Baptist is. Because he is so successful and so influential, he may, you can almost read it in the text, he may just be the Messiah. He may just be the Messiah. He says, we've got to find out who he is. So the Levites and the priests of Jerusalem ask him, who are you? Guys, I'm getting a little bit of reverb in, in my ears up here. I don't know if y'all can do anything about that. And he said, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. 
And they asked him, What then are you, Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you a prophet? And he answered them, No. They said to him, Who are you? Two times they asked him, Who are you? Are you the Christ? No, I'm not the Christ. What an opportunity, if you can, think about it for a moment, to really propel yourself into success, to really take over Jerusalem, to really become the most successful televangelist of that day, if he would have said, Yes, I am the Christ. He had enough of a following. He had enough of a movement behind him. But that was not what he was about. He says, I am not the Christ. I am not Elijah. He says, let me tell you who I am in verse 23. I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. I'm not. I am not. But I know who is. I am not. But I know who is. He said he had a a role to play. He had a voice. He had a place to stay. He was living in the wilderness. Not glamorous for sure. He had a message to share. He said, I'm going to make straight the way of the Lord. The problem is, I think in leadership sometimes, we become successful. And we face, and we are tempted with, the Messiah complex. Have you ever heard that? The Messiah complex? It's whenever you think you're God. Now, you'd never say that. You'd never say that. But you think you're invincible. You think, you, you, you think that, that really you're at the top and nobody else could possibly take your place. You see, the reality is, is that John the Baptist had the momentum and had the following that he could have been wherever he wanted to be. The priests and Levites were there ready to promote him. But he says, I'm not. But I know who I am. I am the voice. I am the one in the wilderness. I am the one who's calling out, prepare the way of the Lord or make straight the way of the Lord. I am, I'm, that's who I am. I am not the Messiah and I'm not going to pretend to be the Messiah. Paul encouraged the church at Rome, a powerful church at Rome. He said, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather to think of yourself with sober judgment. I think we need a little bit more sobriety in our world. America needs sobriety in the world. Leaders need sobriety in the world. CEOs need sobriety in the world. Team captains need some sobriety in their life. See, what happens is we become drunk on ourselves. And what he does is he calls us to sobriety. He says we need to have a sober judgment. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. We need to come down and understand who we are not so that we can understand who is and follow the one who is. Muhammad Ali was, you know, the great prize fighter that he was, the great fighter that he was, the the guy who could stand in the ring. I can remember when I used to box as a child growing up watching Muhammad Ali and enjoying watching him. And so as you watch and you hear the story of him, one time he was flying on a plane and, and they got into some turbulence and the, the, the flight attendant came up to him and said, uh, everybody needs to turn, put on their seatbelts and, and, and get ready because we're going through some turbulence. And, but uh, Muhammad Ali did not put on his seatbelt. And so he, he said, Superman, don't need a seatbelt. And uh, he said, the flight attendant said, well, Superman don't need a plane either. So you've got to understand who you are and who you're not. You may feel like Superman. You may be the, the prize-fighting champion in your team, on your team, and everybody looks to you. And you may get that Messiah complex if you're not careful. You may see yourself as invincible, but be ever so careful. Moses was a man of great influence. 
We know Moses is a man of great influence, but before you understand Moses is a great man of great influence, you need to understand the process of his life. He grew up in a palace. He grew up with the best education, the best food, the best possible opportunities in life. For 40 years of his life, he had that before him. But all of a sudden, you know the ruckus that happens, and he has to flee into the, the wilderness. And for the next 40 years, he is running around in the wilderness herding sheep, taking care of the farm getting married, having a family. The third period of his time happens whenever... Well, first, let's let's go through this. The first 40 years, he thought he was somebody. The second 40 years, he thought he was a nobody. But then all of a sudden, God calls him. says, I want you to go. And I want you to speak to the king. And before you see what happens in that third period of his life, you've got to understand, what did he tell God? He said, I can't. I can't speak. He says, I am not able. I am not able. And what was God's response? I am. I am. When we are not, then He is. The problem is, is that many times we think we are and He's not. We live that way in our lives. And we have to understand who we are not before we can really become who we are, before we can really see what God wants to do in us. And when you look at the life of Moses, the first 40 years, he thought he was somebody. The second 40 years, he he thought he was a nobody. And in the last 40 years, he got to see what God could do with a nobody. And God used him to do a mighty work, but he had to figure out who he was not before he could become what God wanted him to become. You have to know who you're not before you can know who you are. Number two, if you look at the life of John the Baptist, you see that you have to have a call and a commission and an aim bigger than yourself. Humility will ever creep away from us and pride will slowly creep into us so subtly that we don't even realize it. We become arrogant and proud and we don't even know it. We become invincible and we don't even know it. We come to this attitude of entitlement and we don't even know it. We won't take a job or we won't enter into a relationship or we won't sign a contract unless it's benefiting us first and foremost. It's about us. And we're living for us. There's a statement that was made by Bud Wilkinson that says, If you think you are the entire picture, you will never see the big picture. I'm afraid that in in our world of success and accomplishment, we see ourselves more than we see anybody else. We see and focus on ourselves and our and our own face and and our own accomplishments. And if it's not for us, then then, then if it's not benefiting me, then 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 that's not good enough, and and, and I'm not going to go there. It's all about it becomes all about us. I'm going to read you a quote by Louis Giglio in his book "I Am Not, But I Know I Am." Great little book. It says, Life is a tale of two stories. One infinite and frail. The other eternal and enduring. The tiny one, the story of us, is as brief as the blink of the eye. Yet somehow, in our infatuation with our own little story and our own determination to make it as big as possible, can uh, possibly can, blinds us to the massive God story that surrounds us on every side. I am so afraid that in this world, that when we become the center of the picture, and we don't see the big picture anymore, it becomes about us. 
And what we have to do is go beyond us and start living for a higher gain, higher aim, a higher goal, a higher mission. But when we live in a world when it's all about us and my accomplishments and my fame and my success and my salary and my position, we are totally missing it. We are totally missing it. Look in John chapter 3. Just go over a couple of chapters to verse 26. We know John chapter 3 from John 3.16. You just go down a few more verses and you read a story where John's ministry was, was big and successful and, and coming up, but so was Jesus' by now. In verse 26 it says this, And they came. Well, if you go back to verse 25, it says, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. It says, And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi. So John's disciples are coming to him. And he says, "Who has uh, um, who has crossed? Excuse me. Who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness? Look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him." Now, hang on that for just a moment. What happens here is we have this comparison game, we have this competition game entering in. Jesus' ministry swelling over here. John's has been big and been the biggest game in town. And then all of a sudden, now more people are going to Jesus' ministry than are coming to John's ministry. And so John's disciples come running to Jesus, come running to John. Hey, we've got to get new tricks. We've got to figure out what's going wrong here because there's more people going over there than are coming over here. Success has a way of distorting our priorities. Somehow, in the midst of the success of the ministry of John the Baptist, his disciples were threatened by the success of Jesus' ministry. See, the disciples were living for their own success and their own accomplishment and their own growth, if you will. But how does John respond to this? John answers in a series of metaphors, and he says this, in verse 27, John answered, A person cannot receive anything unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear, witness, bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ. His disciples were even trying to make Him the Messiah. And He has to say, listen guys, I am not who you think I am. But I have, sent, uh, but I have been sent before Him. And the one who has the bride is the bridegroom and the friend of the bridegroom. And He stands and He bears, uh, and hears Him and rejoices greatly. And the bridegroom's voice, therefore, this joy of mine, this joy of mine is now complete. Why did he get so happy? Why was his joy complete? Why? He must increase. I must decrease. The greatest success in his ministry, the greatest accomplishment in his ministry was not John's success, but was Jesus' success. What what happens is is he could have been counting nickels and noses and people and, and, and success and fame, but that wasn't what John was about. John was about not his fame, but Jesus' fame. And when we live for self and self-accomplishment and all about ourselves and our title, and we forget somehow in our accomplishments, it's not about my success, it's about his. This is one of my favorite verses in all the Scriptures. John 3.30. At the bottom of all my emails, He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. 
And I must think, and you must think about our lives every single day that we live. What aim? What purpose? What mission are we living for in life? And maybe a job change for us, or maybe a a relationship change for us, and, and maybe a neighborhood change for us might be greater for God's good than for mine. I have heard of people in recent days who have sold their house and moved to a lesser neighborhood so that they could be on mission for God in that neighborhood. What about the decrease on our behalf? What about our decrease so that he could increase? Aristotle, 2nd century B.C. philosopher, student of Plato, wrote about understanding the nature of something by asking about its teleos. Its teleos. Its end. When you want to understand the nature of something, the purpose of something, the reason for something, Aristotle would say, you understand the teleos, the end of that something. We live in a day and age where we live for the present. What is my purpose today? My purpose today is to get me more successful tomorrow, which is to get me more toys tomorrow, which is to get me further ahead tomorrow, to increase my fame tomorrow. Instead of looking at our lives as a continuum, as a a, a beginning and an ending, what is the end? Because the end should justify and tell us where we should be today. If we understand where the end is and what it's all about in the end, then that determines our purpose. Not what the neighbors have. Not what I want. How does my life help God accomplish His end? What is the teleos of your life? You live for the moment. You live for the purpose. You live for the here and now. It will all be about that. You must increase. I must decrease. Number three. Not only is you have John modeling for us who he is not, so we can know who he is. Not only do we see that he had a bigger vision and purpose and aim in life, even though his, his ministry may be shrinking and Jesus was swelling. And as long as Jesus was swelling, he was more than happy in the success of his own life. The third thing you see from a life of a humble person, a humble leader, a mighty person, is that you realize the greatest success, your greatest success is helping others succeed. You realize your greatest success is when you are helping somebody else succeed. Men's Magazine recently published, Men's Health Magazine published uh, a study that was done. And they said, if you want to attract a man to an article, to a newspaper article, to a book, somewhere in that, the number one word you need to put in that book, title, subtitle, wherever, back of the book, is success. If you'll have success somewhere in the title, you'll make a man do a double take. You want to talk about success today? Let's define success. Before you go out into the world tomorrow, let's define what a win looks like. You hear that at the job all the time. Let's define what the win looks like. And if we understand what the win looks like, then it will shape the rest of our life. The hotelios thing. What is the win for you? And I want to challenge you that a humble leader realizes that the win for the real win in life is not that I get ahead, is that I can help somebody else get ahead. But actually, that is the greatest accomplishment in life. Again, going back to chapter 1 in John's life, and you find here a beautiful story unfolding in, in John chapter 1, verse 35. It says, the next day when John was standing with his disciples. Again, he's got two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus. So John is looking at Jesus. 
as he walked by and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, I don't have time to unpack that, but just understand that John the Baptist was looking at Jesus and saying, There's the Messiah. You've been looking for the Messiah? You've been asking me if I'm the Messiah? No, there's the Messiah. He doesn't say it once. He says it twice. He says it also back up in verse 29, but we won't go there. Verse 36 says this. Two of the disciples heard this, heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Literally, John lived his life, John the Baptist lived his life to help people know who Jesus was. He lived the life of a disciple maker. He lived the life of helping people. This realm, this kind of lifestyle, because you will understand who these two disciples were. They were Andrew. You know who Andrew was? He was the brother of a guy named Simon. You know who Simon was? Simon was a man who later gets his name changed to Peter. You know who Peter was? Peter was the man who preached the very first message when the Holy Spirit came and 3,000 people became followers of Jesus. There is a very short lineage there of disciple-making. And what is the greatest success of the Christian faith? You know what? You know what? My greatest success in the Christian faith is not whenever I get a warm fuzzy. It's not whenever I have lived a, a holy and pure life unto myself. It's not whenever I have got all my little sins over here privatized and taken care of, categorized and, and isol, uh, isolated or something like that, and I've got them taken care of. That's not success. My greatest success in the Christian faith is when you become successful in your Christian faith as your pastor. And you know what the greatest success in your Christian faith is not when you get up and you have a quiet time tomorrow morning or you pray or you give a tithe to the the church. That doesn't mean you're the greatest success. It's whenever you realize that you have a role to play in God's continuum here, that you help somebody else become successful in their faith. See, it was was John's aim to point people to Jesus, even if it lost, even if it meant losing some of the greatest disciples that, that Jesus would ultimately have. Even if it meant losing the potential, the upside, the opportunity cost was there. I have to live my life and you have to live your life in such a way that I'm helping other people come to faith and helping other people succeed in their faith. It's not just about me. It's what Paul said when he said, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Paul could have easily said in his own words, in his own statement in 1 Corinthians 11.1, he could have easily said, I am following the example of Christ. I'm being successful in my faith. But he realized that his success was built on helping other people know Christ. I thank the Lord that this past summer, we put out this summer, right now, earlier this summer, we put out an appeal for 20 families to sense and pray about a call of God to leave a conference of an established ministry and to go help in starting a new ministry in a new place. We could have just tacked on another gathering here. We could have just done, but we realized there was a need in Rogers as churches were leaving that we can go in and help be a presence there. And I thank God that 23 families have answered that call. And we're going to commission them in a couple of weeks. But I'll tell you what, these 20-something families are stellar families. 
And they're leaving behind big footprints where they themselves understood this. their greatest success was helping other people succeed in their faith. They understood the John the Baptist way of life and they left behind great shoe prints. And what we need today, what we need in this room today, are some people to step up to those footprints. Sixty different positions have we need in vacancy that will happen in just a very few short weeks. Nearly 60 positions of people that are serving in We World and Planet Kids and ushers and greeters and hospitality and, 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 and workers on, uh, on, um, uh, in, uh, in, in student ministry. Just you, name, you can throw a rock in any ministry and there's tremendous void there because a tremendous amount of great leadership, humble leadership, are going somewhere else to serve somewhere else. In We World, we have 17 different positions. Planet Kids, five. All I can say about that is, listen, if you have a child that's receiving these ministries, then you need to be invested in these ministries. Think about it like that. Serve one, worship one. Come for two gatherings. Student ministry, 15 different positions. Hugs ministry, 14 positions. We need five leaders alone for body life groups. It's amazing. What we had is we had 30 groups last year because of transition and some people moving to the new campus. We shrunk down to 20. We were full at 30. We need about 15 different homes to really become what we need to become as a church. But you know what it's going to take? It's going to take humble leaders like John the Baptist. Stepping up and understanding that when I give up my time, when I give up myself, when I give up my my fame, when I give up my story to God's story and I live on a grander story, then only then can I truly truly help others grow up in the faith. Billy and Grady were two rambunctious teenage boys that were growing up in one of the Carolinas. I can't remember, South or North Carolina. And uh, as they were growing up, they were just like any other teenage boy. And as they grew up, uh, there was a there was a big crusade in town one night, and Mordecai Ham was the evangelist. Now, if you don't know about crusades, they're old school stadiums, and you fill them up and Billy Graham style thing. Billy Graham and Grady Wilson went one night to one of these Mordecai Ham crusades. Billy Graham was sitting there and and hearing the message, and it was Mordecai was preaching as if his mother Billy says. That in his, it's as if his mother sat down with Mordecai and said, These are all the things that Billy's doing wrong. Would you please address them uh, on this night? And uh, so it was just like, boing, 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 right at him. And so he was under tremendous amount of, of conviction. So he, he and, and Grady declared they weren't going to come back the next night, but the spirit just wouldn't let them rest throughout the next day. So they go back the next day. They go back and they sit down. Well, they try to sit down. They walk into this stadium and there's no seats. They look around. They can't find seats. They turn to walk out of the stadium. And when they turn to walk out, there's one lonely usher who sees him walking away. And they go up and they say, no, 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 well, I'll find you a seat. I'll find you a seat. And they found him a seat. It was on the front row of the choir. They found him a seat. Now, that's an usher who does their job, okay? Finds you a seat somewhere in the house. And it was on that night 
that Billy Graham gave his life to Jesus. I thank God for ushers, for hugs people who understand that they have a ministry to play, that their greatest success is in helping somebody else succeed in the faith. Think about the boy growing up from a broken home. He didn't have a consistent father. He wasn't academically blessed either. He barely made it through the first grade. Ended up flunking him in the second grade. Teachers and parents decided it would be best to hold him back and maybe he could find some success and move on the next year. And he did a little bit, but he was troubled. And that troubledness spelt over into other places and other areas of his life. And he kind of became a school ground bully. And lazy at times. And academics definitely did not put forth the effort there. But the mother continued week after week to make sure that that boy was in Sunday school. And he had, he had Sunday school teachers, Jim Henry, Buddy Dyer, Tom Jones, and Eddie Smith. And these teachers would continue to be a positive role model in his life. This boy would come into Sunday school class. Sometimes he'd just go to the back in rebellion and sit down and go to sleep, cause trouble. Even was kicked out of Sunday school class at times. But the teachers never quit. Now, I may not be a Billy Graham, but I guarantee you none of those teachers have ever thought I'd be here. Tom Jones, right back there, raise your hand. He was one of my Sunday school teachers. You may think that teaching a class is just filling space. You might think that greeting somebody and helping somebody find a seat is just, you're just taking care of duty. You could be shaping the next pastor of your children. You could be shaping and teaching a future Billy Graham. You know, I just challenge you today to think of yourself as a leader. You may be just a voice. Maybe you're a voice in the wilderness. Your own wilderness. Listen. Declare the way of the Lord. And watch God bloom you. Watch God use you. And give Him the... don't care about where you serve. You may serve in the most dirty position. But it's not about that. It's not about your increase. It's about His increase. The challenge today, Van, if you'll come back up. And I had this message planned long before ever this need was made so clear to me as it was this past week. But there's a little bright green sheet of paper. If you can't see it, you're colorblind. All right? You can't ignore it. Here is our current needs. Here are our current needs. Here are ways that you in your life and in your faith you say, I, I, Mike, I just don't know very much. I'm just not very schooled. Listen, you're teaching a three-year-old, all right? You, you, you're, you don't have to be a rocket scientist. You can teach at the level that you're comfortable at. You can throw a stone at any classroom, at any place. There is opportunity. I can't even teach. I don't even know where John 3.16 Fine, be a caregiver. Fine, just love on the children. 
Here's the challenge. And if you would just be willing to explore any of these areas, circle it. Put your contact information. We'll contact you. But I want you to be thinking about it now. I told you last week you need to be praying about it. So if you're here last week, there's no excuse. You should be praying about it. You hear this week for the first time? Kind of be praying about it right now. Pray fast, okay? And God will answer fast. The answer is yes, by the way. That was the answer. I just got it. So uh, you just got to circle which one you want. Uh, but I want you to do this. If you say, Mike, I don't know, and I don't know, and I don't know, but I am willing to follow wherever the Lord leads. I'm willing to go and serve in some capacity. Circle two or three if you need to to explore all of them. You're willing to do that today. Pick out a place and serve. I'd like you to come and just lay it here at the altar, but take a second, take a minute, and lay it down there. Lay it on the altar. Lay it on the steps and just lay your hand on it and pray. God, if you want me in any of these places, I'm available. I'll be a voice crying in the wilderness if that's all I need to be, but I'll be a voice. I'm not going to try to be the Messiah, but I'll be a voice. Will you be available? Father God, thank you for the, the Billy Grahams of this world. Thank you for them. But if it wasn't for the unnamed usher, Lord, who, who knows? Who knows if or when or what would have ever happened in Billy Graham's spirit. Lord Jesus, I would pray tonight, today, right here, right now, that, that you would raise up some tremendous-hearted, willing-spirited, humble leaders in this room right here, right now, that will say, I am available, God, and these are some areas right now that I can see that, Lord, just maybe you could use me. And so, Lord, I will be a voice if that's all I am. I'll be a voice. If you want me to be in the wilderness, I'll be, a, I'll be in the wilderness, Lord. I just want to help people know the way of the Lord. Lord, use me. Use us right here, right now. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just stand and sing with us. Respond as the Lord leads.